Hi, I'm Antonia, and I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Micah, and I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Jane, I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Savannah, a student midwife. Hi, I'm Lucy, and I'm a midwifery support worker. Hello, my name's Gulbano, and I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Abby, and I'm a midwife. I think in terms of the professional learning, two key issues are we must ensure that we listen actively to women and their families and we must absolutely listen to staff on the ground and I think for too long that that simply hasn't happened in some services. Hi I'm Gemma Murphy and that was Donna Ockington, a senior midwife with many years experience who was commissioned in 2016 by the then UK Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt to chair an independent review into maternity services at Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust. That review was published a couple of weeks ago on the 30th of March and followed the interim report which was published in December 2020. The Ockingdon report published on March 30th found repeated failures spanning a period of 20 years, including at least 304 cases where there was avoidable harm. As a result of these failures, many babies tragically died or were left seriously disabled or with lifelong injuries. And very sadly, the report also examined nine maternal deaths at Shrewsbury and Telford. For this extended special episode, I've had a conversation with Donna to hear what she hopes all maternity services can take from this report to improve safety. You'll hear that later in this episode. The report itself contained 15 immediate and essential actions for all trusts in England to implement and adopt to improve safety and care. And later in the episode, I will catch up with the RCM's UK Director for Professional Midwifery, Mary Ross Davy, to discuss what the RCM is doing to support its members implementing them. But for now, let's hear from the RCM's Chief Executive and General Secretary, Jill Walton. by the RCM's Chief Executive and General Secretary, Jill Walton. Jill, how are you? Um, I'm fine, actually, Gemma. Um, I hope you're well too. I am. It's been a busy couple of months at the RCM with maternity services, I guess, barely out of the news. And because I work in the media team, we've been exceptionally busy, as have other colleagues in other parts of the organisation. But the RCM has been really raising its voice, hasn't it, on key issues around understaffing, pay and safety. It absolutely has. And I think whilst the Yockenden report is quite shocking for all of us to read, it does give us what we wanted in terms of proper attention and funding for maternity services, because we've been saying for a long time, haven't we, Gemma, there's just not enough midwives. And, you know, it couldn't continue. And I think working through a pandemic is absolutely tipped everybody over and they feel very fragile and very tired. So in a way, Ockenden has given us some hope that maternity services are going to get the appropriate funding in order to, you know, do what we need to do, which is to provide really brilliant care to women and families. Absolutely. And uh, you've talked about the fragility of midwives and, and our members, and I'll be talking to Mary Ross Davy later in the episode about what the RCM is doing to support members with the immediate emergency actions in the Ockingdon Review. But I wanted to get your thoughts, Jill, in, in general, on the publication of the review. Was a real turning point for maternity services? It, it absolutely was a turning point. I mean, we were you know, expecting it for some time and obviously there was the part one, but actually reading through it every single page, you know, I, I was personally really shocked and, and actually sad. I mean, sad for the families. It took so long for them to get answers and for their voices to be heard. And there's that first lesson, you know, women have to be listened to. But also, you know, Gemma, as a midwife, I know how hard it is for midwives and maternity support workers and our members and the wider maternity team to read the report. And we know that the reasons why care was poor in that service over many, many years are really complex. And it's going to take us a while to understand. But I think we all recognise parts of that report from right across maternity services. But the bottom line is it hasn't been funded appropriately and it hasn't had the attention it's deserved. So it is shocking and sad, but hopefully there's something positive and a legacy from those families having to have gone through all of this, that that's a positive legacy, building on some really great things I know midwives and maternity support workers are doing in services. So that's what we've really got to focus on. 
because there's so much great things happening, initiatives and programs. And I think, like you said, you're dead right. It's been lost a lot lately, and particularly with the kind of narrative in, in the news media. You did say in our initial press statement in response to the Ockenden Review that this has to be a turning point for everybody working in maternity services. Yes, and I think that's the cultural bit. We've been trying for some time to to have one voice, uh, particularly with obstetricians. So there's mutual, equal respect and trust. And when you read through the Ockenden report, the, there's quite a lot of mistrust and poor communication between the teams, between midwives and midwives and midwives and obstetricians and midwives and obstetricians and the rest of the team. So we really know that the way that we have to change the culture is by coming together. We set up a round table last week with all of the professional associations and and rural colleges that are involved in maternity care so that we could have a first conversation about how we do that and we then produced a statement which showed the commitment to work together and I think that's a really good step forward. Uh, We want to work with, you know, baby and parent charities as well, which of course we do already. But I think it gives maybe a a blueprint for what needs to happen locally too. So as I say, it's how do we take the positive way forward, the positive legacy from uh, Donna Rockington's inquiry and, and really make a difference and make maternity services great again, because everybody works so hard and that they really deserve it and they can be great like like you said with the right amount of staff and the right levels of investment maternity services and midwives can deliver really great care in, in the right environment they absolutely do and you know i i believe because i'm a midwife we get it you know midwives understand what they need to do to care for all women really put them at centre of care, make sure that those women understand the choices that they have, whether that's around antenatal care or labour, birth, postnatal care, their choices, the evidence underpinning them. And when they've made that choice, you know, the thing that midwives do really well is then be their advocate, be their voice so that, you know, I, I, you've heard me say before, it's like conducting the orchestra on behalf yeah. of the women. Yeah. And that is absolutely true. Yeah. Standing up as a voice for women to make sure the care they get is safe and high quality from everybody that they need care from. And that is absolutely key, isn't it, for moving forward? If you have opted in to receive the RCM's newsletters, you would have heard more from Jill directly on the day the Ockingdon Review was published. And if you missed that correspondence, please ensure your details are up to date, as you can hear from Jill fortnightly in the RCM's all-member emails. But that's only if you've opted in to receive our emails. And you can do that now. You can change your email address and your preferences on the RCM's website, rcm.org.uk. All you need is your membership number. Now, while you're on the website, you might want to stay there and check out the RCM's brand new safety hub, which is loaded with up-to-date guidance, advice and support to help you in practice to improve safety in your day-to-day role. in some fantastic multidisciplinary teams in my time where we've just worked together so well with such mutual respect and really learned together I think is is an absolute key in them being able to really respect each other's different roles and then respond appropriately in emergency situations but also be able to have those really effective discussions when it's not an emergency it's a bit of a grey area and you're just trying to work out what the best course of action is So I think there are some really great examples across the UK of positive workplace cultures where midwives, obstetricians, anaesthetists do all work together really effectively um, to improve the quality of care that we give. That was Mary Ross Davy, RCM's UK Director for Professional Midwifery, and we'll hear more from Mary later in the episode on those immediate and essential actions contained in the Ockingdon Review. But first, let's hear from the report's author, Donna Ockingdon. She's led the largest review into maternity services in the history of the NHS. And I'm so pleased to welcome Donna Ockingdon to the RCM's podcast series. Donna, firstly, how are you? Um, Well, I'm obviously pleased and relieved to have published our final 
the um, maternity services at the Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust. I'm really pleased with the, the reception to it, both professional and families. As you know, our families asked for two things. They wanted answers and they wanted our work to make a difference. And I do believe that we will have achieved that, although I would be the first to say there were times throughout the lifespan of the review, um, listening to family stories and listening to staff stories when it was really, really tough indeed. The the experiences of the families, just hearing them are absolutely harrowing and actually their bravery and and how much pain they must have gone through waiting, you know, waiting and waiting. And finally, this review, of course, you extended the, the time that you were taking to do the review, which I think was really warranted as well. Absolutely. So you will remember that when I was first asked to chair this review, I was asked to chair a review of 23 cases of potentially significant concern. As we published, so as we we, we, um, had completed all our reviews, my multi-professional team of midwives and doctors had actually reviewed 1,592 cases. I mean, the two numbers, when you put them together, they, they bear no resemblance to each other. And so repeatedly, I did have to go back to the families, particularly the original 23, and say, the caseload is growing, please bear with me. And and they were just amazingly brave and patient. They clearly had faith and trust in my team and I, and, and that was maintained right up to and since publication, which was a huge honour, actually. Uh, that's that's really great to see. And I think it's really something that we have witnessed that's so important as well for those families, particularly those bereaved families. Donna, you've done quite a number of media interviews leading up to the report after the publication of the report. There's still lots of coverage of the report's findings, which is, of course, totally warranted. But do you feel the coverage of the report was fair and balanced? So I think broadly, the reporting was balanced and fair. And I think broadly, journalists have have been largely very responsible. And in fact, families asked me on the day of publication to thank the journalists for many of whom walked the journey with them. I think that most of the headlines have recorded the key issues accurately. But what is, I think, really important is, is that where there was some limited reporting that it was inaccurate, The Royal College of Midwives, RCM, RCOG and myself, we got onto this really quickly. And you'll be aware of our joint letter in The Times, um, Jill Walton, Eddie Morris and myself. And we were really, really clear in our response, which was, was published, that the UK remains one of the safest places in the world to give birth, that we're seeing these annual reductions in stillbirth rates and that multidisciplinary teams working within maternity services you know, are more skilled than ever in detecting and taking appropriate action when things go wrong. However, all three of us were very clear that we need urgent attention to staffing numbers. And we were, we said in that letter in the Times how pleased we were that the Secretary of State had accepted the findings of our report in full. So I think working together very quickly, from memory, it was over a weekend, myself, Jill and Eddie Morris, saw something that concerned us and then acted on it really quickly. And and we got that correction published from memory. I think it was on the Monday morning. That's right. It was, in fact, on the Monday. It's a fine line, isn't it? And I'm really conscious of this working within the RCM's communications team about sharing factual information, evidence, experience of service users and families, but also not wanting to scare women who are currently pregnant because that may make make them more anxious during their pregnancy journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I have the privilege, as the RCM does, as the RCOG does, to talk to midwives, um, maternity support workers and doctors and families on the ground every single day, sometimes seven days a week. And I think there is that um, fine line. We have to be clear that we all know that maternity services have been underfunded for in excess of a decade. The RCM and RCOG have been speaking out on that. Our report, last year's select committee report, drew attention to that. But I think what is really positive for the way forward is that the Secretary of State has accepted in full our findings, our immediate and essential actions, and that does have a safe workforce, a fully funded workforce right at the heart of it. 
And that really is something positive to come out of many of these tragedies. Now, speaking through my own work with many midwives since the publication of the report, there, of course, has been like an overwhelming sense of shock amongst midwives and all maternity staff at the findings. But I guess there's a lot of professional learning to be taken from the tragedies that happened as well. Absolutely. I, my, my team and I have had contact from hundreds of midwives, doctors, student midwife support workers on the ground since the report was published. And pretty much all of the feedback, whoever um, has provided that feedback, has been so, so positive. But again, that, that, that sense of shock at what we found. I, I think what is very clear is it is two groups of people here it within our report within our review were silenced women and their families were silenced and staff also were working within a poor culture so staff have told me personally right up to and including the publication day and afterwards that within that trust staff felt unable to speak out they felt unable to raise concerns and they felt unable and unlistened to when they raised workforce shortages. So I think in terms of the professional learning, two key issues are we must ensure that we listen actively to women and their families, and we must absolutely listen to staff on the ground. And I think for too long, that that simply hasn't happened in some services. Yeah, in terms of staff, as you mentioned, one of the most shocking things for me in terms of staff and culture was when I read the report and I saw that some comments from staff were only gathered by you and the team in a kind of a three month, 12 week span leading up to publication. So there were still issues with culture in that service up until the new year of this year. Oh, I would say there are still issues with the culture of that service up until today. So we... I personally, um, I suppose I'm easy to find, you know, you can find me via my mobile number, my office number, various types of social media, but staff were reaching out to me personally as the chair of the review, right up to the day of publication and afterwards. And there was in all of their communications with me, a real fear about being identified a real fear of, well, this might cost us our jobs. So that obviously, I have a phrase that I I can't unknow what I know. So I am duty bound as a professional, as a registered professional to um, raise those concerns. Obviously, I always did raise those concerns anonymously, both of the trust and, you know, higher up the chain. But yeah, it, it does still concern me that there is an issue and that staff on the ground in that trust still have some considerable fear about speaking out. Yeah, a really terrible culture to be working in. In terms of the immediate and essential actions, Donna, in the report, firstly, well, how important are they for maternity services in in England to adopt and implement them as soon as possible? And how feasible do you think it is for those immediate and essential actions to be implemented as soon as as possible? So I I think in response to that, I would say the key words are in in, in their description. They are immediate and they are essential. So in both of our reports, my team and I, we decided we were not, absolutely not using the phrase uh, recommendations because we all know excellent reports have been published, recommendations come and go and they sit on a shelf. So we were really clear, immediate and essential. We were delighted with the support of the Secretary of State. We couldn't have been more pleased that he fully accepted everything that we said and fully accepted the immediate and essential actions. And of course, now we all need to work together across Department of Health, NHS England Improvement, the Royal Colleges to make rapid and measurable progress. I mean, in terms of how we go about doing that, I'm really clear. I've been an RCM member for longer than I can remember. And the RCM have been really, really clear about the shortage of midwives in England for a number of years. So in our report, we almost parallel or mirror what the RCM have been saying for years, that there is an urgent need for significant multi-year funding. But I think as it stands now, I think all of us working together have got a responsibility to progress the IEAs. 
where we can, we must all do what we can, but recognise that having a safe and fully funded workforce is absolutely um, fundamental to this. Since the initial interim report was published in 2020 and up until recently, the government have announced, you know, further stages of investment and funding into maternity services. But do you think it's enough, Donna? So what I would say is, is that the funding that's been identified and announced and provided, first of all, the 95 million and then the 127 million just before report two was published, is a huge stride forward. I would say that maternity services feel at the top of the agenda for probably the first time in my long career. But the Select Committee report um, on safety of maternity services that was published last summer, supported by NHS providers, very clearly stated that an extra £250 to £300 million was required for maternity services. So clearly the sums don't add up. The investment we've had is welcomed and it's a huge stride in the right direction, but there needs to be more. And what we did, it wasn't our role, for example, to sit with the calculator and rework out the sums that were already established as correct by the select committee. So we fully endorsed that. We have been fully endorsed by the Secretary of State. So I think we are on a journey where some funding A great deal of funding has been announced, but more needs to happen and more needs to be provided. And I think the RCM will absolutely agree with you on that point. Have you seen or are you aware of any action plans to implement the IEAs yet in any units across England, Donna? Absolutely. There's been some brilliant practice. So what I've seen actually on the ground when I visited units, but also via Twitter and other forms of social media are infographics. They started with report one, um, looking at the seven immediately essential actions. And I think it was the Royal Devon and Exeter unit did the very first one. But since then, there have been really good examples of um, Southampton, Cornwall, Dorset, Liverpool, Women's, and so many more. And even though the last report was only published three weeks ago, there are already infographics being created by trusts and being shared. I think what's been lovely is to see relationships being built up on Twitter where RD&E and Royal Devon and Exeter started this trend, but then they were sharing very generously how they put that work together. So what we see is midwives and maternity teams across England talking to each other and working out together how they can all make sure that they do implement the IEAs that we set out in Report 1 and now Report 2. So yes, such a lot of good practice on the ground and so much to be proud of. I guess you and the team were really happy to see that. Isn't it wonderful for, you know, services learning from each other, like you said, and and sharing the information that will will improve, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's been one of the really positive features. And I think it's interesting. We've seen that mirrored in my team. You will know that over the, the lifespan of the review, we've had 93 midwives and doctors working as clinical reviewers within the team. At the point of publication, somewhere in between 70 and 75 people worked on that report. So even within the team, where our team has come from Leeds in the north, stretching right down England to Plymouth in the southwest, we've seen as well people who wouldn't have ordinarily met each other through their work, working really collaboratively together, you know, Plymouth working with London and Leeds working with Southampton. And so, yeah, I guess we've mirrored that as we've produced our our report. And I think that what you can see in the very practical nature of what we've written is our report was written by clinicians, by midwives and doctors on the ground for their midwife and doctor colleagues on the ground. And again, I think that's another reason why it's been so positively received. There's something in that, isn't it? Peer to peer. Absolutely. And and we've seen it daily throughout the whole of the review. And now we are seeing, well, we saw it after report one, um, you know, with Rod Evan and Exeter creating that first infographic, which I thought was so clever. And that sharing now, as I say, from Sheffield to Southampton to to Liverpool to um, Cornwall, so many great initiatives that have come out of report one and now report two. I think when an independent review such as the Ockingdon Review 
mentions what the RCM has been shouting so loudly about for so long. There is a sense of vindication in a way that our voices are being heard. And like you said, the Secretary of State acknowledging that, acknowledging that there are issues with the workforce that needs to be tackled urgently to implement the IEAs. Now, we've talked about the actions, but in the interim report published in 2020, Donna, there was rapid actions and there was a deadline, wasn't there, on services in England to implement those actions. Has a deadline been created for the immediate and essential actions of this report? So um, my understanding is going back to report one, December 2020, my understanding is that trusts are required to submit evidence on an ongoing basis against their progress as regards the immediate and essential actions. So what I would say, I was a head of midwifery for many, many years. And so what I would say to heads of midwifery, directors of midwifery, clinical directors of obstetrics is this mustn't be a tick box exercise. This is your moment where maternity services are absolutely at the top of everyone's agenda. So use this opportunity if you feel that this, you know, that Ockenden is becoming a tick box exercise, then stand your ground, speak out, talk to the RCM. If you're a doctor, talk to the RCOG. It's so, so important that we use the almost the roadmap, the blueprint that the combination of Ockenden 1 and 2 have given us, we use the greater understanding that I think government are now expressing about the need for safe maternity services and and think of this as our moment to make things better for staff on the ground and for the families that use our maternity services. That's great advice. You're absolutely right. There is kind of been a reckoning, hasn't there? Maternity services are in the limelight and there's an opportunity there to improve safety and tackle some of the challenges head on. Prior to the publication of your report, Donna, back in March, the RCM published guidance for its own members standing up for higher standards. And we have touched on that about improving culture and speaking out when you see things aren't right in your service. Absolutely. And I've obviously read that guidance in full. I I think that it's really, really important to, to reiterate as often as we can that speaking up when you see something is wrong at work, it's a professional duty and responsibility. We recognize that that is easier said than done. And if you take into account the culture that was described by staff on the ground at the Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust, that can be really tough. I think at the end of a long 12 plus hour shift, when you haven't had a loo break, you haven't had a coffee break, staffing's been atrocious. I I completely get it that there will be a feeling, I just want to go home. But if members can just take five minutes to use whatever system there is, whether it's a Datex form or or, the various iterations of um, safety monitoring tools that there is, please, please do it. And I would also say to members on the ground, talk to the RCM. It's my honest belief that the RCM absolutely gets this, absolutely understands. And with Jill's leadership and our joint work with Eddie Morris of the RCOG and all of the other Royal Colleges coming together, this is now the moment, I think, for everyone on the ground, whether they're the most junior student midwife or the most senior and experienced director of midwifery to all stand together as one and tell it how it is. And if things are not right, now is our opportunity to work together to fix it. You know, you're so right. The more voices that that are heard and and there's strength in numbers, isn't there? The more people that speak up encourages others to do the same. Many midwives, Donna, listening and maternity staff and doctors listening to this podcast right now are working in understaffed, highly pressurised maternity units. They're doing their utmost to deliver safe care to women and their babies, but they feel the system is against them. What's your message to them? I would say that I, I talk to midwives, doctors, student midwives and families pretty much every day of the week, which is which is a huge honour. So I recognise and I understand and I hear firsthand about the huge pressure that maternity services are, are currently under. I highlighted this in my letter to the Secretary of State. So when you, you um, prepare a report for the Secretary of State, a formal part of that is a letter. And I was very clear that maternity teams on the ground are exhausted. 
But what I would say, what I also hear from women and families is that the role of midwives, student midwives, maternity support workers, and of course, members of the medical team are hugely, hugely valued by mothers and and families. I mean, I remember my own midwives. My daughters now are 21 and 17, but I've still got a really clear memory of the midwifery care that I received. So what I would say to members, midwives and others on the ground who are feeling so pressured, first of all, a huge thank you for everything they do. But please don't be silenced. Use this opportunity with maternity services right at the top of everyone's agenda to say it how it is. Fill in that Datix or whatever system it is you use in your trust. Speak to the RCM and please feel reassured that the system is listening and the RCM is a really important part of that. And lastly, but so importantly, women really, really value their midwives. So please, I recognise it's tough. We all recognise that it's tough. Be proud of what you do on a daily basis. Donna, thank you so much. I know you're a very busy person and and things aren't going to get any quieter for you. So thank you so much for taking the time out to come on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm just so honoured to have been asked to talk to you. Thank you. And welcome Mary Ross Davey, RCM's Director for Professional Midwifery, back to the podcast. How are you doing, Mary? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks for inviting me on again. Now, you were part of the team at the RCM that was tasked with analysing and reviewing Donna Ockenden's report into maternity services at Shrewsbury and Telford. We got sight of the review the evening ahead of it being fully published. Can you tell me a little bit more about the team and how something like this so large and so important is tackled within the RCM? Yeah, it was a really interesting experience to be involved in, actually, because it's the first big report that I've been involved in since I was at the RCM because the interim Ockenden report we knew was much, much smaller. But we'd had a bit of a practice run with that. But luckily, we've got members of the team like Sean O'Sullivan, who has been around at the RCM for a long time. And he has lots of experience of earlier reports, including the Francis report and the Kirkup report. And so he had a, a good structured approach for us to as soon as we had what's called the embargoed copy of the report, which, as you said, we were waiting for all the day before and it didn't come out till early evening. Uh, So we then had an interesting evening into the night where we divided up the report according to really our expertise and background. So we had three members of the professional team. uh, So myself, Leah Briganti, and we had Jackie Lambert, um, who's country director of Scotland as an honorary member of the professional team. And we worked with Abby Aplin and Sean O'Sullivan to divide up the report and focus on those immediate essential actions and look at how they related to the content of the report and also think about what is it that we at the RCM can do in response to that and support members with that. So it was a bit of a three-branched response that we were trying to do over that evening and then into the next day. Yeah, I can definitely say as part of the comms team uh, working alongside you, we worked late into the night. The report was 258 pages long. And I guess you could say the RCM and and the team that you've just described kind of benchmarked some of these essential immediate actions against current work that's happening. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So in response to the interim Ockenden report, so that was in December 2020, we'd done lots of work during 2021 to support members in responding effectively to the recommendations, the immediate essential actions. There were seven of those from the interim report. So we produced the solution series and that focused on learning from earlier reviews, positive and negative, of maternity services, of what works and what doesn't work, because we're aware that a lot of these reports do come out with really similar findings. Unfortunately, time and time again, you see similar findings and similar recommendations. And so what we tried to do with that publication was to draw together those key findings from earlier reports like Kirkup before it and Comtaf. And so then the rest of the solution series looked at culture, it looked at leadership, and it looked at human factors. 
all of which come across really strongly actually in the full Ockenden review. So it's it's been good that we've already got those publications out there and we're really encouraging members if they haven't already seen them to go and look at the solution series and pull out. There's lots in there that's very practical about looking at your own service, your own team, your own personal practice in relation to creating a positive workplace culture and the style of leadership and really good signposting to resources that you can use in a really practical way in your services to improve culture and leadership and really address those human factors. Because like you said, they they are things that have been highlighted in previous reports, like when Dr. Bill Kirkup looked at the incidents in Morecambe Bay, but it's a lot for like an average working midwife who's exceptionally busy to take in and, and digest along with keeping up to date and all the other guidance that's coming out. It's, it's really impossible, I think, when, when you're a frontline midwife to keep on top of all of these reports, all the different recommendations. And then from the interim report, NHS England had then produced checklists for services to benchmark themselves against those, those immediate essential actions. And that's really necessary. So what we try and do is really try and think of who our members are and, and what is it that they need uh, on a day-to-day basis to understand what the report has said, understand what the immediate essential actions are and what might their role be in that. So really trying to bring it down to our individual members. So when we think of our members, we think of midwives who are working in obstetric units, but also community midwives working in midwife-led units. We're thinking about students, we're talking, thinking about support workers, lecturers, and also managers, because there are members too. So thinking, what, what do all of these groups of our members need uh, to help them respond effectively to this really, really disturbing report? Absolutely. So I think we'll go through, which might be helpful to those listening, we're going to run through the 15 immediate essential actions now. And along the way, we can signpost to what the RCM has already in place to support members. So let's look firstly at the workforce planning and sustainability immediate action. So we have said the RCM has long called for more midwives, you know, essential in delivering safe quality care. Um, And we recently published a safer staffing position statement. And we did have Sean um, O'Sullivan, who you mentioned earlier on, on our March podcast discussing this. But there was an element within this workforce planning and sustainability around training for newly qualified midwives, Mary. And from our own research, I think we understand very well now, particularly during the pandemic and in the current climate, it is difficult entering the profession as a newly qualified midwife. It's hugely difficult. And what we know is that, unfortunately, we do lose midwives from the profession in those early years after qualification, which is just tragic when this is the career that they've chosen. They've studied so hard for the degree. And so we really want to make sure that that we are really nurturing those new midwives and, and welcoming them into the service. I set up a group in Scotland when I was director in Scotland called the First Five Years Forum, and they did a fantastic piece of work, actually, where they did a literature review, an international literature review, looking at what what do newly qualified midwives need from a preceptorship programme, what works well and what works less well. So that's it's published on our website for people to, to have a look at. But that was really clear about the elements of a good preceptorship programme. And what the, the group also did was go out to services across the UK that have been recognised for having really positive preceptorship programmes. So we talked to folk in Cardiff, Glasgow, and also Chelsea and Westminster in London about their preceptorship programmes. And what they do is they make sure that every single newly qualified midwife that joins the service has an identified mentor. They have ring fence time for learning and also for networking with other newly qualified midwives. And they are also able to access time for their learning and reflection and time with their preceptor or mentor uh, during that year with very clear outcomes that they're expected to reach over that first year or 18 months but that are individualised to them and their particular learning needs and the things that they feel they really want to to focus on in that early period. So there's lots of evidence about what makes up a good preceptorship programme. The the difficulty is in really implementing that when we know that services are so stretched, 
And so it's it's less easy for them to provide that really nurturing environment and make sure that those midwives have that allocated time and that preceptor. So I'm glad that it's been recognised in the Ockenden report as something that really needs focusing on. And we want to work proactively to make sure that that's implemented, not necessarily about where those newly qualified midwives are placed, because I think there is a place for newly qualified midwives to having that experience, that early career experience in all parts of midwifery, so community and hospital based. And it's about the support that they get to really become really competent, really solid in their skills and confidence. So important. They are the future midwives. You know, they are the people that will staff the, the service going into the future as others retire and move on. Now, Mary, escalation and accountability featured heavily in this report, and it has done in many others, including CQC reports into failed and failing services. This is, is something that a lot of the parents cited as something that was very difficult for them. Absolutely. Uh, hugely distressing stories throughout the report, actually, about sometimes a failure to, to recognise that when things were deteriorating, but also some distressing stories when, when midwives were identifying that there were problems and they were seeking to escalate and get additional support and care for women. And that wasn't forthcoming. And I think really for me, what was very clear in this report is that all of the elements were interacting to make that escalation more difficult than it should be. So the the difficulties with safe staffing, so the lack of uh, safe staffing was one of the factors. And then that also led and escalated a really negative culture. So there was a culture of fear. It talks about people sometimes being ridiculed for asking for help, that it wasn't normal to feel able to ask for help. People being told that they shouldn't escalate things, particularly in the middle of the night. Difficulties with midwives feeling able to escalate or transfer from the midwife-led units into the obstetric unit because they were worried about the response that they would get. So all of those factors play in to to the ability of a midwife in the room with that woman to feel able to make that decision to escalate and then be sure that she or he is going to get the right response. Because if you're continually not back when you refer something or you escalate something, then you, you become less and less likely to do that over time. So what we're doing at the RCM with with others is we're trying to do lots of work to make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do. So that is particularly at the moment we're doing our ABC collaboration, which stands for Avoiding Brain Injury and Childbirth. And we've been working for nearly a year now with the RCOG and this institute to really co-develop with frontline clinicians and also service users, a really effective tool. So not just looking at that heart rate and the CTG, but also looking at all the other factors that affect how this baby is going to be able to cope with that labour and what is happening to them in that labour. And then having a very simple checklist, if you like, to say now is the moment that you need to escalate and this is the response that you should be able to expect. So that's been a really fascinating, really fast-paced piece of work and we're hoping that's going to start to be able to be rolled out and tested nationally over the coming few months. So I think that's really going to help um, with those difficult decisions to escalate actually during labour. Yeah, and I'm sure, uh, you know, midwives and others listening will identify with that pressure that, that you've just described when they can't escalate upwards. Now, in terms of clinical governance, obviously, there's very a lot of questions that the trust at Shrewsbury and Telford themselves need to ask when it comes to incident investigation complaints and reports and how they played out. Many of the families um, had bad experience when it came to investigations and the pace and transparency of those investigations, Mary. Yeah, it was really, really shocking to read about the lack of appropriate investigation, about how some really serious events were were downplayed and downgraded, uh, described as having just a moderate effect. So it really does demonstrate how absolutely key it is that maternity services are seen as a priority within every trust and board and that the board level take responsibility for that oversight of quality in maternity services. 
it was described that maternity services in this trust was inhaling its own smoke and and just try to kind of get on and do its own thing. And really, you need that wider vision to, to really ensure safety in a service. And you need an understanding of what makes up a safe maternity service at that trust and board level so that they then provide the appropriate staffing and the appropriate systems and structures. I think it's also really important that families are involved in investigations. And from the interim Ockenden report, there's already work that's being done to make sure that there are service user representatives who are able to be advocates within trusts to support families through those processes and make sure they're they're involved in getting the information that they need and that they're able to input because their experience of the care and what happened to them is absolutely central. You cannot understand what happened to someone by just looking at the notes and just talking to the professionals involved. You need to have that that full picture. So I think we really welcome the recommendations around ensuring that there is appropriate governance structures, that there's external review of serious adverts events, that families are really involved And we're looking at the RCM at what we can do to support that happening in a much more consistent way in in every service. Yeah, another IEA that we obviously welcomed very very much was learning from maternal deaths. And we we quite often do comments, sadly, on maternal deaths when we look at the Embrace reports into maternal deaths as well, Mary. That's right. Um, The the Embrace reports have, have just been massively important for maternity services for decades now in terms of shining a light on where care falls below the standard that would be expected and and making some really key recommendations about how we can improve services. Over the years, there's been really key recommendations that have affected really positive change around things like the rate of suicide among women during the childbearing year, and that's led to massive improvements in, in perinatal mental health services. So I think it's really important that we do continue to look at the Embrace report alongside things like the Ockenden report to make sure that we're benchmarking our services against the the really key recommendations from the Embrace report. I think the other focus that the Embrace report has brought over the last couple of years is really noticing and addressing the inequalities that exist in outcomes for women and in the higher rates of maternal death and also stillbirth and neonatal death among black women, Asian women, and women from other ethnic minorities, and women living with deprivation. And I think it's really key that we maintain that focus as well, and ensure that we're improving care for for everyone in, in every service. Absolutely. In terms of culture, you know, Donna cited more multidisciplinary training, and I think that's really key, isn't it, when it comes to kind of, you know, high functioning multidisciplinary team. It absolutely is. I mean, I've worked in some fantastic multidisciplinary teams in my time where we've just worked together so well with such mutual respect and really learned together, I think, is is an absolute key in them being able to really respect each other's different roles and then respond appropriately in emergency situations, but also be able to have those really effective discussions when it's not an emergency it's a bit of a gray area and you're just trying to work out what the best course of action is so I think there are some really great examples across the UK of positive workplace cultures where midwives obstetricians anaesthetists do all work together really effectively to improve the quality of care that we give. We know that there are really good examples of multidisciplinary training packages, things like Prompt. And in Scotland, we've had the SMMDP for years, which are taught by a multidisciplinary faculty and and focus on obstetric emergencies. So we've got a really good baseline for that. I think what has happened is that when you have services that are really stretched, in terms of staffing, training is one of the things that gets pulled and and it doesn't happen as often as it should do. And I think once that slides, people get out of the habit of that happening. And I think shining a light on this again and saying this this is vital and this is people's jobs to be effectively trained. So we need to make sure, particularly midwives, have that ring fence time 
for multidisciplinary training and learning. I think it's something that that the medics have always had a bit better in their work plans than midwives because they they have allocated training time as part of their work plans and midwives haven't. And so what will often happen, a midwife goes in thinking she's going to have her CTG training that day and then she's pulled because the unit is really busy and, and that just cannot keep happening. I guess there has to be adequate backfill in place to enable midwives to keep up to date with their training as well, which is really important. Donna highlighted antenatal care, and I guess that's, in my you know, very low clinical opinion, is that about setting women who may have complex pregnancies out on the right path from, from the beginning, from that first appointment? Yeah, absolutely. It's about making sure that our services are really accessible so that the women know how to get involved in antenatal care and meet their midwives nice and early in the pregnancy so we can start really talking through about their particular personal risk factors or clinical needs and making sure that we've got a great plan of care in place for them. I think what comes across in the Ockenden report is that there are women with particular medical complexity that we do need to make sure that we're providing them with the evidence-based care. And the report particularly focuses on multiple pregnancies, on women with diabetes, women with hypertension. So I think that is something we need to make sure if we need to look at all of our guidance locally and think, does this reflect what the latest evidence says that we should be doing? So have a look at NICE, have a look at Embrace, all of those things and make sure that we have specialist focused services. I think what's interesting there is it is recognised the importance of having continuity uh, for those women with complexity. So making sure that they see the same midwives, the same obstetricians, to make sure that they can pick up when problems are emerging and really talk to women about what's actually happening for them. I think the other important thing about antenatal care is about helping women make informed decisions about their care and about things like where they're going to give birth, making sure they they know the evidence for different places of birth, different types of birth, and how that affects them with their particular circumstances. We've produced a couple of new guidances on that. So one about looking after women who choose care that falls outside standard guidance and one about informed decision making. So we hope that will also help. The other work that we're really involved with at the RCM is the Tommy's collaborative work, which is looking at making sure that we risk assess women really appropriately during pregnancy using innovative online technology so that we're using AI technology to make sure that we're identifying those women who might need additional support and care at various different points in their pregnancy and labour. When it came to labour and birth on the immediate essential actions, the review team said, you know, women who choose to birth outside the hospital, I guess, in a home birth setting, need to have more accurate advice when it comes to transfer times and, and what can possibly happen there. Absolutely. I think there's always more that that we should and could be doing to make sure that women understand exactly how they would transfer, why they might transfer, how long that would take. What I would make a plea for is that we address that by making sure that we have enough midwives and that those midwives have enough time to spend time with women. We haven't seen uh, the antenatal appointments, the booking appointment, and then the subsequent appointments get any longer, the allocated time, uh, even though more and more needs to be discussed and it is added in to those appointments. So it's really vital we have the work, right workforce and that we then identify how long midwives really need to have those really in-depth conversations. It isn't just about handing someone a leaflet or pointing them to a website. You, you really need to have those proper conversations that are really individualised with women about what their hopes and expectations are for where they give birth and how they want that to be. And I guess it's those face-to-face conversations where, you know, midwives can pick up on any kind of areas of concern, you know, that that woman may have about her pregnancy or birth in terms of anxiety or safeguarding as well, Mary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes it's only when you really sit down and have those conversations that that you understand that women have 
uh, have misunderstandings about particular aspects of care or what might happen to them in a particular situation. And so it's really about understanding their perspective and, and what their particular fears are about different types of care and then really talking them through about what their options are. I think it can be hugely satisfying as part of your role as a midwife to, to have those conversations, but it's only possible if we have the time to do it. Absolutely. Now we're up on 10 of the immediate essential actions and they all are very focused on, on midwives and of course the wider wider team as well. But there, ha- there are some more direct actions in there for anaesthetists, say, for example, but midwives also need to be aware of, of, of what they can expect from them. Yeah, what was really clear in the report is that it wasn't just midwifery staffing that was low. There were also real pressures in obstetric anaesthetist staffing and also in the obstetricians uh, staffing. So it's so vital that we have the right number of people for all parts of the team because it describes incidents in there where midwives were trying to make sure that a woman got an epidural and there was a really long delay, or even trying to get a woman into theatre for an emergency operation, there just wasn't the anaesthetic cover for that. So it has a huge knock-on effect to how effective we can be as midwives if we don't have the right members of the MDT around us. It also really identified that they weren't seen as part of the MDT the anaesthetists, and they weren't involved in reviewing cases. They weren't involved in multidisciplinary training when it happened. And so we really need to make sure we do that. And and I think really important that we have them involved and also neonatology teams involved as well in those kind of reviews and discussions and training. Yeah. And now postnatal care was identified as an issue. And we have said the RCM for so long that it is the Cinderella of maternity services in terms of the funding and investment it gets. During the pandemic, I read, and I'm sure others have, as you'd have, many stories from women who suffered postnatally, but not the right follow up. And we heard stories as well. Midwives, you know, run ragged amongst, you know, 10, 15 women, maybe one or two midwives trying to care for them after birth on a postnatal ward. Yeah, it's it's impossible what's asked of, of many of our midwives and support workers in terms of providing any kind of quality care on, on postnatal wards. I think it does identify in the report the need to really look carefully at the push to transfer women home really quickly and early because they had a high number of readmissions of women postnatally with really quite severe conditions and then not being reviewed when they were on the postnatal ward by the medical team. So it was almost like, well, once the, the baby's here, then that you know that's when the focus ends. There are also descriptions in the report of midwives being pulled from the antenatal postnatal ward to cover a busy labor ward situation. And, and that can't be the case that you're endlessly robbing Peter to pay Paul. Midwives were also pulled from the midwife-led units to the consultant-led unit. So we we need that staffing across the board, across all parts of care to make sure that we're really helping women and families make a positive start to parenting. It has such a long term effect on those early years of that child to, to set women and families on the right path. So we do need to put that focus on postnatal care. We've been saying it for years, haven't we, at the RCM, yeah. but we all need to work with our colleagues um, from the NCT who also have a real focus on, on postnatal care and make sure that we're getting that focus, getting that staffing right there. And, and similarly, I think the bereavement care that's um, talked about in the immediate and essential actions is absolutely vital. It's vital that services have focused services to provide good bereavement care. Specialist midwives are really important in developing the right pathways of care, the right forms, the right training for all staff about bereavement care, and then also being able to make sure that women and families can access ongoing support and services. And that was clearly just woefully lacking in this service. And and I'm glad to see that that's a focus here in the report in terms of immediate and essential actions. And there are some excellent examples across the UK of of some services that have really good bereavement care programmes in place and specialist full-time bereavement midwives. So I think really that's something where you 
services can learn from another, assuming they have the funding to get these specialist midwives in place. On neonatal care, Mary, we're up on number 14 now of the immediate essential actions. Yeah, so neonatal care was actually the service that seemed to not be as concerning as the other parts of the maternity service at SAF. And that is because they seem to have a better level of staffing among the nursing and neonatal doctors. They also had a good system of really developing nurses through the advanced neonatal nurse practitioner roles. There weren't the discussions in the report about poor communication or poor working cultures. And so it does show that even within a service, you can have variability depending on the culture that is created in in any particular team or part of it and how the staffing levels are. There there were concerns, though, around how the neonatal unit had, um, had actually been described as not being an intensive care unit anymore, but they continued for many years to take babies that really should have been transferred out to a specialist unit. So that that was the, the main issue that was raised in the report. Okay, and finally, 15 on the IEAs was supporting families. And I guess throughout our conversation right now, all of this and all of these actions are all about better supporting women and their families. But this is something that really came through quite strongly in the report, Mary. It's it's so key and it's so sad to hear the examples in the report where women haven't received the care and compassion that they should expect from, from any experience with maternity services. I think what is key, and it is addressed to to an extent in the report, is making sure that we are caring for the carers, that we're making sure that midwives and obstetricians have a compassionate environment that they're working in, that there's compassionate styles of leadership, that they're able to access support and care for themselves if they've been through a traumatic experience. And I think we do need to look at how well and how well supported PMA services are and in the country's um, supervision services for kind of really restorative supervision for staff. I think if we get that right, that will also help us get it more right in terms of providing compassionate care for families. There need to be really robust systems in every unit for MVPs and MSLCs in the country so that services are regularly engaging with women and service users and families about their experiences of the care, really getting honest feedback and and then really making sure that they look honestly at, at that feedback and then try and address any concerns really being proactive about complaints as well and making sure that you're addressing specific concerns that are raised in complaints and not just being defensive and brushing them under the the carpet, really needing to be honest and look at ourselves and think, how could this be prevented from happening in the future? Absolutely. So important. Was there a timeline or a deadline put in place for the implementation of what we've just discussed, Mary? No. So interestingly, actually, these immediate essential actions don't have a timeline. They obviously will need to now have lots of discussion about timelines, about funding. The health minister has accepted the immediate essential actions and committed to implementing them. So that's a really big thing for us, because with that kind of commitment, then there should come the funding to support the implementation. And and that's going to be absolutely key to get that foundation so that we can then have the building blocks, which really are about creating safe staffing levels across maternity services to then really be able to build from there to make sure that we're all addressing these actions as rapidly as we can. And I don't, even though this is a report that is published in England and that obviously the immediate essential actions are for trusts in England and for NHSE to to lead on addressing those issues. There are lessons here for all all four countries of the UK, and I know colleagues in all of the countries are looking really carefully at the report and and benchmarking their services against the immediate essential actions. And I think that's going to be really important that we all do this wherever we're living in the UK. We don't just think, oh, that's a problem that happened in England and it's nothing to do with us.
That's really great to hear because I guess there's parts of, of this report and, you know, in some areas are going really well and maybe they can take some parts that aren't going so well and implement those. And like you said, it's sharing, isn't it? The knowledge, the lessons between the countries just to kind of strengthen the, the services as a whole. It's absolutely key that we all learn from each other. And so I think attending things like the RCM conference in October to really learn about what services are doing. I think I learn a lot from the RCM awards, the award winners, all the fantastic work that they're doing, but really getting engaged in networks, you know, making sure that heads of midwifery, directors of midwifery engage in national networks and practice development midwives do the same, consultant midwives, so that we're all really clued up and really talking to each other about what works and really help Helping each other say, look, we tried this, worked really well. I'll share that document with you. You know, I think that's how we should all be working. And that's the way that we're all going to be able to make progress uh, together. That's brilliant advice. Thank you so much, Mary. Much appreciated. That's a pleasure. No problem. That's all for this month's episode. A big thank you as ever to all my guests. You can catch up on all our episodes in this series, series two and last year's series on the RCM's website where you'll find podcasts and webinars that may be of interest to you. Now, as April draws to a close, International Day of the Midwife is just around the corner. That's on the 5th of May. And while there are lots of challenges facing UK maternity services, there is so much to celebrate and so much progress and great practice has been made and is happening out there and that deserves to be celebrated. The theme for this year's IDM is 100 years of progress and if you are a branch member or an activist listening, please do register your event at idm.events at rcm.org.uk. That's idm.events at rcm.org.uk. And please avail of all the support and guidance for any events that you hope to hold on the 5th of May on the RCM's website. Next month for our May episode, we will focus on the RCM's Rebirth Project. If you don't know a lot about that, don't miss our May episode where you'll hear a lot more on the Rebirth Project. Until then, take care.